As I was studying this week, looking at our text, I found my mind going back again and again to the idea of the power of expectations, the incredible power that expectations have in our life. All of us have experienced it in different ways, in different scenarios. Our expectations are met. That's a good thing, right? What you expected happens. You kind of think, okay, I knew that. I was ready for that. I was prepared for that. Expectations are exceeded. That is a very good thing, right? We love it when our expectations are exceeded. You walk into a new restaurant and you're not sure how it's going to go and you sit down, you have a top five meal of your life. That's a good moment. Expectations exceeded. We love it when that happens. Expectations unmet, that's harder for us, isn't it? When our expectations aren't met, it leads us into frustration or disappointment, even a vague kind of depression. Sometimes it leads us into anger. I'd venture to say that the power of expectations is so significant that that expectations and what our expectations are will have a significant impact on how we will walk through life. Whether we will walk through life as people that when we encounter surprise, when we encounter obstacles, we become angry, disappointed, frustrated, or whether we are people that in the midst of of things that don't go our way, things that go unexpectedly, we, we walk with peace and with joy, with hope. Whatever it is, whether we step into training for a marathon or we start a new job, the expectations we have upon entering is going to have a significant impact on how we walk through the various ups and downs that are sure to come. So it got me thinking, you know, we named this series Daring to Be the Church. And it made me wonder, when you became a Christian, did you expect that it would involve an element of daring? An element that's going to require courage. What was your expectation when you first came to Jesus? What's your expectation now of what it means to live life with him and for him? And the question we have to ask ourselves is whether the expectations that we have walked in with and that we're carrying even now align with the realities we see in the pages of Scripture. That's what we want to talk about this morning. In order to do that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 14. So open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be picking up, of course, right where Brian left off last week. And if you weren't here, Brian introduced us to the the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, and then a call upon them was given by the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. And they set out on a missionary journey and they sailed out across the Mediterranean and worked their way across the island of Cyprus. And then they went north and they hit the the coast of modern day Turkey. And then they moved north up into Pisidian Antioch. And there they encountered incredible opportunity and also a number of obstacles. But no matter what they encountered, what didn't change was that Paul and Barnabas were laser-focused on the mission that God had given them. And as they moved forward in Pisidian Antioch, they then received a call to move on to a city called Iconium, and that's right where chapter 14 picks up, in the middle of this missionary journey. So 
Acts chapter 14, verse 1. They've now arrived in Iconium. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So Iconium was a city about 90 to 100 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch. And so they made the trek there, probably a three or four day trek. And when they arrived in Iconium, they did what they always did. They went to the synagogue first. And Brian explained last week that the reason the synagogue was always the first stop in their strategy is that the synagogue was the place within a city where people that had a hunger for spiritual things would go. Whether it be God-fearing Greeks or or God-fearing Jews, it was the place where you knew you could have conversations about the things of God. So that's just what they did. They went into the synagogue, and we learned that both Jews and Greeks believe. And that's a theme that we've seen throughout Acts, and especially in the spring, we talk quite a bit about what a remarkable thing it was that God was bringing these two peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, and out of the two, making one people of God. That's going to be a continued theme, and it's a continued struggle for the church to figure out how do you bring these people that have been divided, how do you bring them together? But we learn that God is doing incredible things, or was doing incredible things in Iconium, and some believe that the Jews and the Greeks, but we also learn that there is some rejection, there is some opposition, an obstacle that they encounter. And it's not just that there were some who disbelieved and they were rather ambivalent about it and said, you know, Paul and Barnabas, we don't really like what you have to say. We're just going to go our own way. It was just the opposite. They were vehemently against what Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. And it says that these disbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles. In the version I'm reading here, the New American Standard, it says that they embittered them. That word embittered means literally something like to do evil or to do harm. And so what was happening is the disbelieving Jews weren't just saying, you know, these guys are crazy. They were saying slanderous things, harmful things, trying to provoke those who had believed to do harm to Paul and Barnabas and their team. So how will Paul and Barnabas respond? Verse three, therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. They spent a long time there speaking boldly, a resolute response, a daring response, a courageous response, an on-mission response. I asked just a second ago about expectations. It's almost as if Paul and Barnabas were expecting opposition was going to come, and so they were not caught off guard in the least by the fact that there was fierce opposition to the things that they proclaimed. Now, of course, they were expecting this, right? All they had to do was look at what had occurred so far in this missionary journey in Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch. But I also imagine that Paul maybe had his mind drift back to that first moment when he the ascended Jesus. And then as we're the ascended Jesus, and then as we're reading that story, we talked about it in the spring in Acts 9, we're told that Jesus says to Ananias, I want to let Paul know how much he will suffer for my name. Expectations 
set. This is a mission, and missions necessarily encounter resistance. They weren't caught off guard. They were not surprised, and yet they were resolute. Now, the question is, was it easy for them? When they met opposition, do we think that just because they expected it, that made it simple, that they just moved on without being concerned? Well, I don't, I don't think that's the case. It says here that they spoke boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Their dependence upon Jesus emboldened them. Simple fact is meeting resistance is a difficult thing, isn't it? As I was reading this, I started to think about the way I operate sometimes, the way we operate as a church. Not necessarily Lincoln Berean Church, just Christians today. It's difficult to meet resistance. We don't like upsetting people. And part of the thing I've started to ask myself is some of my, some of my concern about not upsetting people, has some of that led me maybe to take on a posture that is somewhat risk avoidant. I don't want to upset people. I don't want to say something that might cause them to be upset with me. And because of that, maybe I have become timid. Maybe I have become hesitant to speak boldly the truth of the gospel. But the simple fact is that the gospel is something that divides and we have been a people, we are a people that have been set on a mission. We have been set on a mission, and resistance is sure to come, but oh, that God would would prepare our hearts to expect resistance will come. But not only that, that he will then also embolden us to step forward courageously, daringly, and proclaim the truth, even when we know opposition will come. The other thing I thought about as I reflected on this short part of verse 3 is, is it's just interesting that, that if I start to resist, if I start to get a little passive, one of the things I miss out on is the opportunity to grow in my faith. Because what we see here is that resistance led to greater dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As people, as, people, as we go out and we meet adversity... If we avoid that, if we start to take on a posture of avoidance, what that can start to lead to is almost an atrophying of our faith. But when we step out boldly, we have to rely on Jesus to give us the strength to move forward, to proclaim the truth in the face of obstacles, in the face of resistance. And that's just what Paul and Barnabas did. So back to the text, continuing in verse 3. It says, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. So we have this interesting statement in verse 3, that that Jesus was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So really what it's saying there is that Jesus was granting these signs and he was authenticating the truth they were proclaiming. It's as if the signs and the wonders were a stamp of authenticity upon the the truth, the reliability, the truth of the gospel that was being proclaimed. You know, sometimes as we read through, through books like Acts or through the gospels, even in the Old Testament, we read these incredible miracles, these healings that occur. 
It's easy to start to wonder, what is that? How come that no longer happens, or I don't see that happen, at least with the frequency that it seems it happens on these pages? And it's worth noting that that just as a church, we absolutely believe that we have a healing God. Our God is a healer, and He still heals today, and He can do whatever He wants. He is not constrained. So as a people, we want to be people of faith that, that reach out to him and ask that he would bring about healing, just as he did back then. We're doing that right now. One of our very own, Jason Knott and his family, we pray fervently for his family. Pray that God would heal Jason. Pray for many of you, and I know that many of you have encountered healing in your own life. God still heals. Sometimes that healing is spiritual. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's emotional but we have a God who heals. But one thing that's important to note in the text is that here, uh, the healing itself is never the point. The healing is a signpost. It it, It points past the healing, past the act, and it points to the truth of the God who heals. The healing itself is not the point. So Paul and Barnabas proclaim... God then authenticates the proclamation with these healings. And what happens? Because of the incredible signs. Everyone believes, right? Everyone believes. Everyone's happy. Everything is very, very good. No, just just the opposite. Division continues. Obstacles continue. Opposition continues. Said it before, but, but it's worth saying again that the gospel divides. The truth divides. The proclamation that Jesus is Lord, and back in this day, that Caesar is not. Jesus is in charge, not Caesar. That was offensive to the Greeks. The proclamation that Jesus is in charge, and he's doing it differently than the Jews anticipated. That was a stumbling block to them. Jesus is in charge means that you and I are not in charge. And for some, that is a great relief. For others, that is a provocation. That is a problem for them. You know, a few years back, uh, one of our college students invited me to go with him to the Atheist Club at UNL. They were kind of having an open forum where people could ask them questions. And, and it so happened that not many people came, so it became a dialogue. They asked us questions back. And we had a good discussion, and as we were talking, I I didn't care to ask them, do they believe if there's a God, because we know that they don't. But I did ask this question. I said, would you like there to be a God? And one of the ladies there answered very honestly. I think it's a profound answer. She looked back and she said, no, not at all. I don't want there to be a God. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, because I want to be in charge of my own life. I don't want anyone else to be in charge. The proclamation that Jesus is in charge means you and I are not in charge. And for many, that is a tough pill to swallow. So how do the people in Iconium respond? Verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the people of Iconium respond with threats of death. 
Stoning was something that would happen in the Gentile world, also in the Jewish world, when, when you feel that someone has done something that, that is offensive enough, blasphemous enough, that it deserves death. And so the apostles catch wind of it, and they decide it's time to move on. And sometimes that's exactly the right response. So they move on, but we learn that they continue to do the very thing that is leading people to give death threats or to, to push death threats their way. They continue to proclaim the gospel, undaunted courage in the face of murderous threats. Have you ever been rejected when you've shared the truth or shared the gospel with somebody? Sometimes that rejection makes you think, you know what, I'm not going to do that again. You share it with your neighbor and they reject it and they say, I don't really care to talk about that. And you get timid. You get timid. My wife once told a friend of hers that, that I pray for you daily. And this friend wasn't a believer. This friend said back, would you stop it? Don't pray for me any longer. As I proclaim the, the truth or or talk to people about the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I've had people say that is bigoted, that is hateful. You can't say such a thing. It is tough to be rejected. So what was it in Paul and Barnabas? What was it in these apostles that allowed them to endure so faithfully, to step forward so courageously in the face of such opposition? I think the only answer is that these two and the team that was around them, they were caught up in the drama of what God was doing in the world. They were so compelled by a vision of the risen Christ sitting on the throne. They were so caught up in the majesty of God and the work that he had called them to that it allowed them to endure incredible suffering because Jesus is worth it. And the story they were participating in was so compelling. Are we caught up in that story? Have we settled for for a smaller story, a smaller mission? Or are we caught up in the mission and the vision of God? A compelling vision can pull us through incredible trial. Verse 8. At Lystra... A man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So just as powerful miracles have been done in Pisidian Antioch and then in Iconium, same thing happens here in Lystra. God is authenticating the proclamation doing incredible healings. And Luke makes it abundantly clear that this guy that walks had no business walking. Three different ways Luke makes it clear that this was not supposed to happen. His feet were weak, lame from the womb, never walked in his life. No business walking. But Paul sees faith in him and calls him to stand. And this guy doesn't just stand. He jumps up, he leaps And he walks around an incredible miracle. 
An incredible miracle, the power of God moving in this man's body. Think about all the things that God did to bring this about. You know, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, God healed this guy. But, but he didn't just strengthen the feet. I don't know if you've seen someone that's never walked, but they generally don't have the muscles in their legs to support them. God grows the muscles. And then I don't know if you've ever seen a toddler walk or someone who's never walked before, but it's usually pretty clumsy. They sure aren't jumping up and leaping around. But God strengthens the feet, builds the muscles, gives the coordination, helps this man know how to walk, complete healing, complete restoration. An incredible miracle. And the people of Lystra, well, they're not sure how to respond, and so they do the only thing they can think to do. They think these must be the gods. These must be our pagan gods that we've worshipped forever. And so they start to, to gather the priest, and they say, we better offer sacrifice to these gods, to Zeus and to Hermes. There's a tale that, that years prior, centuries prior, Zeus and Hermes had actually visited this region. And one of the things that happened is only one couple worshipped them or, or appropriately welcomed them. And so Zeus and Hermes, in response, destroyed everyone else in a, great, in a great flood. And I'm sure that was in the mind of these people in Lystra. And they thought, well, we better welcome them appropriately. So this is a chaotic scene. Party getting ready to occur. Festivals, sacrifices getting ready to occur. So how are Paul and Barnabas going to respond? Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas were appalled. They were appalled. They tore their clothes, which is what you do if you're Jewish and something blasphemous is occurring or about to occur. And surely that's what was about to happen because the people of Lystra were about to commit idolatry by offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. What's clear is that God had done something incredible, but the people of Lystra had absolutely misinterpreted it. They needed to be, to be clued in. They needed to be informed about what had really just occurred. And so that's just what Paul sets out to do. And he starts by saying, we are just people. We are just people just like you. God is doing something incredible through us, but he's the one doing it, not us. And then he, he pivots into a gospel presentation that, of course, is, is a little different than what we'd expect. And last week, Brian talked to us about how as we go out and proclaim the truth, we need to be people who are shrewd, and we need to be wise about the way we're doing that. And Paul, knowing that in this region, knowledge of the God of the Old Testament, knowledge of the Messiah that, 
the Jewish people were waiting for would have been nowhere within their framework of, of thinking. And so he goes all the way back to the God who created all things. And he starts to talk about the God who created the heavens and the earth and the one who, who overlooked things for generations but still poured out blessing on all people, this common grace of, of allowing the sun to rise on the good and the evil, giving blessing through rains, through the harvest. This is the one that you should turn to. You give up these vain things, these gods that are not living gods and worship the one true living God. Paul is, is urgently trying to get their focus back on the living God, off these pagan gods that they had been so used to thinking of. But what's clear is that this, this miracle that occurred was so powerful, so astounding, that it's hard for them to get their attention off of what just occurred. And so we're told that, that they are it's difficult for Paul and Barnabas to restrain them from offering sacrifice. And so in the middle of this chaotic scene, some old friends arrive on the scene. When I'm reading this, I almost think of it like one of those old Westerns where you see a posse come in on their horses. And we have some bad guys that come into town in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. In the chaos of that moment, crowds going crazy, they want to offer sacrifice. The disbelieving Jews we'd been reading about, those that were part of that opposition party, come on the scene, and as crowds are liable to do, they quickly turn from excitement to murderous anger. And they stone Paul. Now make no mistake, a stoning was something that was kind of mob rule in the Gentile world, and it was what you did to blasphemous people in the Jewish world. And stonings were never intended to hurt. They were always intended to kill. No such thing as a, a slight stoning. What they would do in the Jewish world is they would find the largest stone they could possibly pick up and they would throw it at the person they're intending to kill, hopefully hitting that person's chest, but also their head. And it was always intended to, to end their life. That was absolutely the intent. And that's precisely what they thought they had done to Paul. And so they think he's dead and they drag him out of the city. But God, again works an incredible miracle, and through his power revives Paul, who was dead or near death, we aren't sure which. But they thought he was dead, and now he's alive. And this is a miracle that feels to me on par with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Paul is left for dead. I can't imagine what the disciples must have thought that were surrounded him, that's surrounding him. You know, they're kind of standing around him and they think he's done. They think it's all over. I'm sure they're trying to figure out what do we do next? We thought this would be bad. We didn't think Paul would die. And then he stands up. I imagine him kind of brushing the dust off his shoulder. And then again, in this courageous move, what's he do? He walks right back into the city, filled with the people that just tried to kill him. Incredible courage. 
And then we learn that the next day, he and Barnabas say, well, I guess it's time to continue doing that which is getting us killed. Let's continue to move on. And so they go on to Derby. Verse 21. After they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Again, all cities where they had been threatened and run out of town. They stepped back into those cities in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they preached the gospel in all these cities, and then they circled back around and strengthened the the young disciples in these small fledgling churches in these cities and appointed elders in each of these towns, reinforcing what had, had been said just days or weeks earlier. As we look at this first missionary journey, we look at the themes. In some ways, I think this should serve as a reminder for us as we follow our God and we engage in the mission that he's called us to. To be engaged in mission in mission is necessarily to encounter opposition. Fifteen years ago, when we walked through this book, Brian introduced the imagery of, of what the Christian life is like, and, and he said, the Christian life is not a cruise ship, it is a battleship. Not a cruise ship, but a battleship. Now see, if we think it's a cruise ship, if that's our expectation and we're looking for the shuffleboard and the endless buffet lines, the cherries jubilee, or whatever dessert you prefer, well, we are going to be sorely disappointed. We are going to be frustrated. We are going to be angry. The Christian life is not a cruise ship. It is a battleship. We are people on a mission. Jesus himself told us this, didn't he? In John 14, he looked at his disciples and he said, in the world you will have trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. And Paul and Barnabas basically say the same thing here. Through many tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom of God. What is our expectation of the Christian life? When we stepped in, were we expecting this to be a cakewalk? Everything would just go our way, or were we expecting that to be on mission with God would require that we, with boldness, step out and say things and do things and be people that will encounter obstacles? We will encounter opposition. As we're engaged in mission, are we, are we anticipating that we will encounter neighbors that won't like what we have to say? That won't like what we have to say. You know, throughout Scripture, when we think about the way the, the Christian life is described, so often it is, it is terms like self-sacrifice, like surrender, like taking up your cross. The one that we follow stood before Pilate, that tyrannical governor over that tyrannical empire, right, in Rome, the governor of, of the region. And he looked at Pilate and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants wouldn't allow this to happen, but my kingdom is of another realm. And as I was thinking about the way that we are on mission, one of the questions I found myself asking is whether, is whether as we've taken on 
the mission of God? Have we expected there to be obstacles? You know, we live in a world, in a country that has an incredible heritage, an incredible legacy of freedom. And I am so thankful for that. Never want to stop being free. Never want to stop being thankful for that. But you know, one of the things I've thought about, an unintended consequence of that, is that sometimes as a believer, I can start to think that everything is supposed to align and everything's supposed to be going my way. We have incredible privileges in this country. So thankful for that. But it can start to make me think that whatever I say, everyone's going to applaud it. The mission of God is one that will encounter opposition. And while none of us will walk out of here today and encounter stoning, I don't think, we will step into our neighborhoods. We will step into our workplaces. We will step into what is enemy-occupied territory with a word of truth that will cause division. And church, are we expecting that to be the case? And in that expectation, are we clinging to God to give us boldness, to give us courage to dare to be the church? Are we caught up like Paul and Barnabas in the incredible drama that God is unfolding in the world? Are we caught up in the work that he's doing? Have we taken the mission up? Because if we have, if that is you today, I guarantee life is not dull. Life is not boring because there is nothing more compelling than what God is doing in the world and participating with him in that. Paul and Barnabas were compelled by the work of God. If you haven't, have you settled for a lesser drama? We are people made to be caught up in a story but are we caught up in the right story? The story of what God is doing in the world. Verse 24, closing out the chapter, they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. It says that how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We're going to see that theme over and over again. And next week, we're going to see how that caused confusion. And they had to work through all that that would entail, all that that would mean. But as they return to Antioch, Luke is somewhat subdued in his description, but I have no doubt this was an incredible celebration. This was a group of old friends, partners in ministry, co-workers in the mission of God, gathering together and recounting all that God had done, all that he was doing in the world, how his mission was being accomplished. God is marching forth through history and they were talking about the way they had seen that done. And I ask, when we gather, that is exactly what we should be doing. That's exactly what we should be doing on Sundays when we gather, when we gather in our life groups, talking about the way that we see God moving in the world as we partner with him, participate in the work that he is doing and say to one another, you wouldn't believe what he's doing in my workplace. You wouldn't believe what he's doing in my neighborhood. 
God has called us to an incredible mission. The first missionary journey that we read about here shows us that obstacles will come, but none of that can stop the work of God as it moves forward. And we see these early believers stepping forward with great courage, with great faith, encountering obstacles, but not letting that deter them from the work that God had called them to, relying on Jesus to continue to press forward boldly. So I ask a few questions, Lincoln Brian Church, brothers and sisters, has God changed? Has the world been reached? Has the mission that God has called the followers of Jesus into, has he revoked it? Has he, has he, has he removed that mission from us? And the answer, of course, is no. No to all those questions. The world's changed. The culture's changed. But the mission has not changed. Not for a second. None of us are, well, few of us probably, are ever going to get on a plane or on a ship and go to a foreign land to proclaim the gospel. But all of us are going to leave here in a few moments, and we're going to step out into a world that does not know God. And we are called to be people that step out proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Will obstacles come? Absolutely. Will that deter us? from speaking the truth, from boldly moving forward, from daring to be the church. Well, church, let it never be so. Let's pray that God would embolden us to move forward in our city together. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, you are the one who who called us, who knows us by name, and we thank you that you have made us your sons and daughters. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you are the reigning Christ. And we long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. We long for that day. But until that day, Father, set our expectations aright. Help us to know that that in the world we will have trouble, but you have overcome the world and embolden us to step out to step out and boldly proclaim the truth that the world needs to hear. That many, many more in this city and around the world might come to know you and enter into the life that is truly life. Pray all these things in your name.